Good morning. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 39 through 54. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew them from about a stone's he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in, an, in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. The word of the, of the Lord. I wonder if you have ever struggled with what Renaissance mystics called the dark night of the soul. When you're struggling in life, feeling alone, and experienced the silence of God. I have not yet. I have had seasons of what I would call not feeling close to God. Being a believer most of my entire life, I've had seasons when well, it was probably actually just my own laziness, when I went through months when I wasn't actually seeking God in an earnest way, not really praying much. Um, either that or just the fact that my emotional meter kind of goes from like five to six. Some of you live on the zero, 10, zero, 10, zero, 10. And so I'm up at six, I'm down at five, you know, kind of like on cruise control. Occasionally you have to slam on the brakes, but it, the result is sometimes I, that the feelings aren't there for God. My faith is still there, but not necessarily the feeling. So I'm not talking about that, just that kind of blasé that might be tied to our emotional style or just laziness. And I'm also not talking about what some of you in this room might experience, which is a silence from God because you don't actually believe in God. The thing about God is, yes, you can reject him, and his absence can affirm your belief that he doesn't exist, but I don't think that's what I'm talking about either. It's rather this, when you desperately need him and you're earnestly seeking him and nothing. C.S. Lewis talked about this after experiencing the death of his wife, Joy. Lewis didn't get married till later in life and for three years he enjoyed this wonderful marriage and relationship with Joy, an American woman, and then when she was gone, he said he sought God and got nothing. Here's what he writes, meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. You see, when you are happy, so happy, that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, 
If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A slammed, a door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. The Psalms are filled with this same sort of cry. It's the cry of why. Where are you, God? In Psalm 22, which we had read, David cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I cry, but you do not answer. A couple of hundred years later, one of the sons of Korah penned Psalm 88, an entire dark lamentation, and he was the worship leader of the community. This guy writes Psalm 88, and he cries out, why do you hide your face from me, Lord? Where are you? Where are you seemed like a constant refrain in the Old Testament, not always explicitly stated, but if you track the story of the Bible from Genesis all the way through until you get to the Gospels, you will find that time and again there is silence. God gives promises to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have a son and you're going to be a great nation and for decades there is nothing. Joseph, the son, the one with the technicolor dream coat, gets thrown into slavery in Egypt where he is languishing, far from his family. He ends up in prison, falsely accused, and for years, nothing. And then Israel, of course, ends up in slavery. Not quite the nation that was expected, but for 400 years, they're enslaved in Egypt. Where's God? Where are the promises? When's he going to show up? He does eventually, but 400 years of silence. After a couple of months, we're, we're done. <laughs> Where are you, God? Eugene Peterson, with his great pastoral insight, writes, belief in God does not exempt us from feelings of abandonment by God. Praising God does not inoculate us from doubts. Meditating on God's word does not insulate us from feelings of abandonment or darkness. He goes on to say, if you don't have a theology of the silence of God, you have a half-truth gospel. It's pretty strong. Jesus, Jesus begins his and ends his ministry in trial in temptation, in battle with Satan. And the battle is basically, will you doubt or trust God? Is his way okay or do you want to go your own way? Right? He's there in the wilderness in Luke 4 and Matthew 4 battling Satan and Satan saying, let's try another way. Does God really have your best in mind? Isn't there another way to accomplish this kingdom? And here at the end of his ministry, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and again he's battling Satan. It's not put there explicitly, but he's in this battle of doubt and of obedience. Can you trust the Father? Are you sure he wants you to go this direction? Couldn't there be another way? He cries out to God the Father, and there is seemingly silence on the other end of the line. But I think in that, Gethsemane, Jesus' prayer there in the garden begins to reveal to us the depth of what Christ did for us. 
And that's why it's worth digging into a little deeper. So this is the night before he is going to be crucified. He has just celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples, and they head out singing the Psalms of the Passover. They're kind of joyfully singing. They're full of lamb and wine and bread, and they end up in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, as Luke records it. Jesus liked to go there pretty regularly to pray, except this time there's something different going on, and he begs them to stay with him. And then he goes off by himself to pray, and he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now, it's important to note the implications of the cup. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, Throughout the Old Testament, the cup was symbolic sometimes of salvation, but more often of wrath and judgment. In Psalm 75, the psalmist says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah, the prophet, says, Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, the cup of staggering. And through Jeremiah, the Lord says, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When Jesus is saying, remove this cup, he's saying, remove the wrath and judgment that I am about to face. Now, Jesus knew from some time before this that he had come to drink the cup. He knew the story, the story of of the couple in the garden rebelling against God and incurring the fall and the curse on humanity. That because of sin, God's wrath was coming on humanity, that all deserve to die, that all have fallen short. He saw it play out in things like the Passover, which we talked about last week, where God's wrath and judgment were going to fall on all of Egypt. The firstborn sons of every household were going to die for the sin of the family unless a lamb was sacrificed in the place of that son. And he knew the history of Israel going for centuries into exile, being put under the sword of the nations, which the prophet said was God's wrath and judgment on Israel for their sin. Jesus knew about the cup. And the cup that he came to bear was God's wrath and judgment for the sin of humanity. He knew he had come to die. Right, And we we see this. If you go through and read the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, he tells his disciples time and again, I'm here to die. In Luke 9.22, he says to the disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He, He told them multiple times, handed over, betrayed, killed, die, rise. Now, Jesus had seen crucifixions. You didn't live under Roman occupation without having seen a crucifixion. The Romans used it as a way to deter people from going against their authority. So extreme criminals and anyone who was considered to be seditious or rebellious would be crucified. It was a torturous, horrible thing, and people were crucified on the main roads in and out of a city so that everyone at some point would see them, their bodies, the horror. By saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed, he knows what it's going to entail. What's interesting is, in the Gospels, up to this point, he'd been very clear and resolute. I'm going to die. So much so that Luke records in Luke 9, 51, that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, for him to die, 
he set his face to Jerusalem. It's a phrase that says, I'm heading this way and nowhere else. Even though later on the disciples are like, hey Jesus, if we go to Jerusalem and you're going to die, let's go to another city, how about? There's lots of other good cities to go to. And Jesus is fixed on Jerusalem because that's where he is called to go. So he knows he's going to die. He knows what crucifixion is. And up to this point, he is resolutely heading there. Why does he now beg, remove this cup from me? He's in complete agony, Luke records. Luke 22, 43 says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood. The other gospel writers add their own set of words. Mark records, and Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here with me, he begs the disciples. And Jesus, who'd been so resolute, so clear, is all of a sudden overwhelmed with anxiety and stress. Mark uses that word trouble, troubled, which is actually fear because of something amazing or alarming. Actually, Jesus caused a lot of people to have this troubled nature when he cast out demons or calmed the seas. They were troubled. It's, it's great fear at seeing something you have not seen before. What has he seen that he has not seen before? Jesus is in terror, horror, and there's deep intensity to his prayer. He is drenched with sweat. It's almost as if the gospel writers are searching for adjectives to describe what Jesus is going through and can't quite put a finger on it. Now, all of us deal with stress and anxiety, and so in many ways we can identify with Jesus in the midst of the stress in the Garden of Gethsemane. Many of us deal or have dealt with intense worry or constant fears. If you live in this area, many of you know what work intensity involves, whether that's in school or in a job, the constant pressure to perform, the deadlines that are put on you, and the just intensity that a workspace can be. Many of you know the fear and anxiety of money problems, either because you are dealing with them or you fear what would happen if you lost your job when you're not sure how you would make ends meet. And that can be debilitating, that just fear of how am I going to put food on the table? How are we going to pay for this house? If any of you have kids, you know what it is to have great anxiety for your children, worry for them. When they're little, it's often just worry that, they, are they going to stay alive? As they get older, it's that fear and worry for them and who they're becoming, or the great pain that's caused by the choices they make as they get older in life, and you just have that, that up-all-night anxiety pit in your stomach. Most all of us at any age know what it is to experience that physical and psychological and spiritual agony. And I have to say, if I'm gonna be honest, if I knew I was going to face Roman crucifixion on the next day, I'd be a little anxious too. I'd be in deep agony, agony and distress as well. 
The problem is this, um, is that many people in history faced horrible executions, torturous deaths, terrible deaths without blinking. History is riddled with great people who faced death without this same sort of shaking. Socrates, of course, famously was forced to drink the poison, and really before he, they were going to execute, have him uh, execute himself, if you would, uh, they offered him escape. It was like the keys were set by the jail, and they're like, I don't know, here's some keys. If you escape, go ahead, and he wouldn't escape. He was not afraid to die, so much so that as, right before he's about to drink the poison, apparently his last words were to a friend of his saying, hey, don't forget we owe a chicken to that other friend of ours because we borrowed one the other day, so make sure to pay him back the debt we owe the chicken. Really, that's what you're thinking about before you're going to die. He is stoic and detached, detached from this earth. He could die, it doesn't matter. Then there's the history in Judaism of the seven sons of Maccabees, for which we get the, uh, the whole story of um, Hanukkah. The seven sons of Maccabees, during the time when uh, a foreign government had come in and taken over Jerusalem and Israel and conquered it and, and desecrated the temple, they were forcing Israelite priests to eat pig's flesh, pork, which was against the law. But these seven sons of Maccabees would not do it. And one after the other, they were tortured horribly in front of the others and their mother and killed. The oldest son preferred to break, not break the law of God and he would die a torturous death and he did. Down to the youngest son, when it finally came to the youngest son who was, who was just a kid basically, have you seen what's happened to your other brothers? And he then tells the king where to go and is tortured to death himself passionate and fearless. It's inspiring. And many Christian martyrs did the same. Polycarp in the second century, a bishop, said, you threaten me with a fire that burns for a time. You don't know of the fire that is to come that burns forever. Hopeful and trusting. Passionate and fearless detached and stoic. And then there's Jesus who in the garden begs his father, cries out, is there another way? You know, what about the ram caught in the thicket that Abraham had or the lamb of Passover? Couldn't we do something like that? Isn't there another way? Remove this cup from me, father. He begs his friends to remain with him. He's feeling alone in a way maybe he has never felt before. Jesus is completely shaken in terror and in agony. Now, you don't actually make this stuff up. If you're a skeptic, a doubter of the whole Christian message, you can say you don't believe in Jesus as God's son, but don't deny some of the truth of what's claimed about him. This being something in particular that reveals that there is integrity of writing here. So the ancient cultures valued courage, valor, maintaining your honor, and dying the man, if you would. So even to record Jesus' agony, his sweating prayer, his, his desperate plea that there would be another way, calls into, his, calls into question his worthiness as a leader, as a founder. 
This wasn't just realistic fiction where you make up all sorts of emotions to make it sound more realistic. Realistic fiction doesn't exist for another 1,800 years. Every myth of a founder exaggerated the claims of the founder and would hide any of their foibles, any of their problems. You didn't admit weakness if you were trying to elevate somebody to kingly status. Either he did or he didn't shake. And either way, you wouldn't record it unless it was true and it was important for the reader to know that he did. What was it that the reader is to know? One, Jesus was fully human. Second, Jesus was facing more than Roman execution. Now look, crucifixion was absolutely horrible. I remember reading a book a number of years back called The Anatomy of the Cross that was going through all the biology of crucifixion. It's horrible. Read, don't go read it. Or Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, which is almost unwatchable. I saw it once. I don't need to see it again. It's graphic torture. It's horrible. Crucifixion was completely inhumane. But Jesus' dread in the garden is not because of torture and pain or a bloody death. You have to remember, Jesus was not just our physical substitute like a Passover lamb for physical death that we all deserve. Jesus came to bear the sin, the offense of all humanity. And he took the judgment and wrath of all eternity. There's something more going on on the cross for which crucifixion was simply an illustration. Necessary, but an illustration of something more going on. You know, here's the challenge, okay, if you want to look at what's going on here. The Bible claims, Christianity claims, that God is the source of all good. So what do you enjoy or like in life? If we were to list out things that you just enjoy in life, it might be things like food, a particular food, a particular type of ice cream, a particular meal you would order because it's your birthday, a particular restaurant you like to go, you like a certain kind of a food, or it's comforts in life. Like, I know occasionally this winter when it's been particularly windy and cold out, I've been thankful for my bed and for the warm covers, just grateful for the comforts of life that we live in the West. What do you like and enjoy in life? Think about just the fun and the laughter and the pleasure of playing games when you're a kid. I mean, just running around with your friends playing games, that joy and that laughter and that fun. Recess in third, fourth, fifth grade. I remember being absolutely terrified at the thought of going into seventh grade because there would be no recess. I mean, seven hours. Seven hours. And there's no, wait, there's no playground at Thoreau? What do you do for seven hours? Why, God, take this cup from me? <laughs> I, I really was, I was so broken by the fact that there was gonna be no recess in seventh grade, because I loved it, it was just fun, it was great, such a joy and a pleasure. There's a joy and a goodness in 
the satisfaction of accomplishment, whether that's accomplishment in music or in work at school or in, a, in your team or work projects, right? When you turn something in, when something is done, when the deal is sealed, just the satisfaction of work well done, which can be seen even in just mowing the yard, right? There's a satisfaction to completed work that is a good, a good thing. And then there's things like friendship or family, the love and security you have when there's a good marriage or you're enjoying a relationship with your siblings or just your cousins that you're totally comfortable being around. All of these good things, every enjoyable thing, the things that we live for are because of and from God. Hell is the absence of all that good. The biblical metaphor for hell and God's wrath is often darkness, darkness, outer darkness, thick darkness, alone and absent. We talk about it here that sin is not just vices doing bad things. Sin is rejecting God, choosing to live your life apart from him on your own. Hell is God saying, have it your way. It's the most just judgment. Now this contradicts comedians who like to talk about hell as a party when they're hanging out with all their good friends. But what they're mistakenly doing in that whole joke thing is not recognizing that parties are good things. You have your friends, you have your laughter, you have your music, you even have the effect of whatever it is you're enjoying at the party. All those things are good things. Hell is not just more of what you like. One episode of The Simpsons has Homer sent to hell, and in hell he's sent to the, uh, what, what did they call it? It was the Ironic Punishments Division. So he goes into a room where there is a demon, and the room is filled with donuts. And he's strapped into a chair, and they keep shoving donuts into his face. Until, you know, it's however many minutes later, He's eating the last couple of donuts, and as they keep shoving them in, he goes, more, more, more. He's so excited. This is, this is hell. I could do this. If it's good, if you enjoy it, it's from God. C.S. Lewis gives us a more stark picture of it when he talks about a critical, unforgiving person and what happens when that goes on forever. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you no longer can, when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. No joy, no goodness, alone, darkness. You want to live apart from me? Have it your way forever. Now contrast this with the intimacy that Jesus had experienced his whole life. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I and the Father, the Father and I are one. I do nothing of my own accord, but only what the Father tells me. 
Regularly throughout his ministry, Jesus went alone into a desolate place or to the Mount of Olives, according to Luke, in order to pray, just to be with the Father, to spend time with his Father. I and the Father, the Father and I are one. The Father loves me. But in Gethsemane, Jesus seeks intimacy with the Father on the night before his crucifixion, and he finds a shut door, bolted and silent on the other side. Tim Keller proposes this, God is the source of all love, life, light, and coherence. Therefore, exclusion from God is exclusion from the source of all light, all love, all coherence. In Gethsemane, Jesus began to experience the spiritual and infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from his father on the cross. The reason why Jesus stumbles, even though the Stoics and the sons of Maccabees and Polycarp and the rest didn't, is because as he calls to the father, he's getting a glimpse of what is to come on the cross. He's getting a foretaste of wrath the absence of God, and he is shattered. A few hours later, he would be hanging on the cross, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And on the cross, Jesus experienced total apartness, total absence of God. He experienced the fullness of hell's forsakenness. But after he finishes praying, he concludes, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Thank goodness. Jesus submits his desires to the Father's purposes. Okay, think about what he's doing here. Jesus doesn't face the horror of wrath and forsakenness of the cross by stoic detachment from selfish desires which is kind of a Greek philosophical or Eastern Buddhist sort of way of going about death. You know, detach yourself from selfish desires. Rather, he faces the cross out of a deeper attachment to God's desires. He loves God's purposes more than his own. And Jesus calls us to do the same. He calls the disciples and us to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That means God wants us to trust him in our suffering, in our loneliness, in our heartache, in our hardship, and in our loss. When you follow Jesus, you do not get the desires of your heart. You get the desires of his heart. The challenge of discipleship is to see the difference between the two. To trust him and to say, okay, I want what you want. At the end of the garden scene, Judas comes with a mob. Judas, one of his closest friends, betrays him with a kiss. He's being forsaken by his friends. But Peter is there to defend him. Peter, the fisherman, 
pulls out a sword, ready to go to battle, right? We're starting a kingdom, Jesus. I'm here to fight with you. We're going to fight all this evil, swords drawn. And of course, Peter then cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. So just so you know, Peter is not a deft swordsman. He's not like, and he cuts off the ear and is like, who wants some more? He was probably swinging for the high priest's head himself. Totally missed him. James and John are probably diving out of the way, and there's an ear that goes flying. Not sure who's at first until the, the guy's holding his ear. Jesus isn't here to fight that kind of a battle. When will you realize it? Instead, he submits to the Father's will, gives himself to the betrayer, and even as it's happening, he's extending love by healing the man. Put away your sword. Peter is what Jesus says. Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The good news of what Jesus has come to do, the gospel, is not about kingdoms of power or victory in your life or the easy life. Nor is it simply uh, directions on how to live your life, to be a better person so that you can get in. The good news of Jesus Christ is about a cross. It's about a cross. Jesus finished the cup of wrath to the bottom. The cup of forsakenness so that we don't have to. In the end, in the end, Either he drank the cup, or you will have to. Let's pray. God, our Father, especially for those who are feeling your silence and distance, I pray that you would show up, that you would meet them and minister to them. And for all of us, Lord, help us to see the sacrifice as more than a crucifixion, but that you took the wrath that we deserve in our place. What grace and joy you offer us. Amen.